failed miserably. I floundered. You know, I was I was beached for a long time and there was a nervous breakdown and there was an end of a marriage and I blew up my my best friendship. But I I didn't let him down and that was my lowest common denominator. Yeah. It wasn't much some days, let me tell you. It was just yeah. barely getting out of bed and getting him to school or getting him to the doctor. But it was all I could do and that bare minimum has to be enough for us some days, right? You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is, you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over. But let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at KarenGoldfingerBaker.com. My guest today, Patty Hall, is a nonfiction writer, sought-after ghostwriter and collaborator, and memoir writing coach for transformational coaches and exceptional authors. Today, we talk about inspiration, voice, purpose, and calling. From an early age, Patty was inspired by imagination and writing, and it is in this conversation that she notices how early experiences prepared her for who she is as a mother and a fierce warrior. We talk about Patty's book, Loving Large, her story about her experience with her oldest son's diagnosis of gigantism. If you love to hear what insight sounds like, you'll dig this healing conversation. Listen deeply. You're in the Trauma Hiders Club. Hell yes, Patty Hall is in the house. What, what, what? <laughs> I am. Boy, I can't believe we haven't done this before. I'm so excited. I know. It feels like we have. Because we we say that when we talk, right? Is we are right. two people who are so intertwined in some other focus, other other folks' lives and other worlds, yet we never get to spend time together. So yeah. thanks for wanting to spend together spend time together and get to what I'm hiding. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I don't know what you're hiding, but um it may come out, it may not. Excellent. But- I will promise you this, that I'll bring my real self and my being here in who I am generally for most people invites them to be who they are in a safe, loving. Thank you. Yeah. In a safe, what loving a little fort. Yeah. It's our little blanket fort here in the Trauma Hiders Club. So, uh-huh. Patty, yes. tell me, what was your favorite book from childhood? Ooh. You got me. Okay, so I had a couple of favorite books, which if we were on camera, I would show you right now. So I was really sick as a child. 
And my mother used to take me to the grocery store weekly with her, and I would always get gifted a book. My mom would always say, choose a book. And they were usually by the very popular publisher known as Mattel. So, you know, this is when toy companies were producing books. So I had a couple of crazy books that became my favorites because the illustrations were kooky and they were otherworldly. So they became my favorite books. So the answer is... I'm a little embarrassed to say them, but I do put them out in the world. They're crazy illustrated books about other worlds there. I'll just mm. say it. What were they called? And I'll even show them to you because you'll... So Tickle Pinkle is the character. Mm. So like I said, produced by Mattel. These are as old as I am. So oh, Tickle wow. Pinkle, you can see Tickle Pinkle. And Upsy Downsy Land was Tickle Pinkle World. Now, I don't know how many of these there were. And this was Baby So High, also part oh, of a series called Welcome to Upsy Downsy Land. I kind of remember that Upsy Downsy Land. Yeah, I think there were upsy-downsy toys of these, and this would be yeah. a blast. And if anyone who hears this after knows more about this than me, these books have been with me, like my favorite stuffed animal, Tigger, who doesn't look anything like Tigger in the illustrations. They've been with me from this time of my life, and it took me a long time to figure out why. And maybe this is where my fascination with sci-fi and fantasy literature came from. But I also have a pretty strong feeling that there's something sort of self-help here and something mm. personal development about me wanting to be in another world at that age. Mm. But I'll tell you, these are the books that made me want to be a writer. So that's why I call them my favorites. Yeah. And you actually sort of went into what I was thinking for my next question, which is what were the books that sort of inspired you to imagine yourself living among the characters in the land of those characters? It was their um, irreverentness. It was yeah. their selfhood. It was that they didn't fit and they didn't need to. It was upsy-downsy land. Everything was upside down. And there's a forthrightness in the characters and their desire to be themselves mm. and to defend one another and champion one another about, you know, I love you in spite of. Mm. And I realized that that has become very much what my personal work in the world is about now, is championing those who are... And now as a result of my memoir and the work I do in medical advocacy is about championing those who are subjected to visually stigmatizing illnesses. I never I never saw visual stigma as having shown up earlier in my life, but I've been sitting on these books for 50 something years, right? Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. You cottoned on to something really, really clever there that I haven't spent much time thinking about. So thanks. Yeah, what a gift. Absolutely. What was it? When you were when you were a child and these books called to you, there's the irreverence, there's the individual, there's right, there's the not that you didn't give a shit, but you were gonna be who you were. What was that in you? Why? It was in me because it's exactly what I wasn't and couldn't be and didn't feel I could be. I mean, it was and still is the outlet of selfhood that I didn't feel open to have as a child. And it was coached out of me, coaxed out of me, talked out of me. Um, I knew who I had to be to get loved and I became her really, really well. And everything else went to the side. I mean, could I have been the illustrator and the book writer in Tickle Pinkle? I don't, I very quickly learned I didn't have the skill for illustrating and God, I wish I did. But 
I'll tell you, my um, passion for children's literature has lasted from that time. So I know that there was a seeing myself and wishing what I could be. And I could not have voiced that then. But, you know, most of my life has been this battle to become the thing I always would have been if I hadn't been told to be something other than that. Mm. And here I am still trying to make that happen. And that's what those books and that time represents for me. You know, I was not irreverent. I did not speak out. I would never have tried to be different. I was blatantly told that was not going to happen. How will you know when you become or are the person you have been working your life to become (laughs) the whole you, how will you know? I think the excuses and the noise might at least diminish. Mm. Boy, that'd be cool to not wake up with the noise, you know? Mm. And now there's the noise of, I don't know what I wish for. Mm -hmm. So, and this is my next book when I'm, trying to encounter the person I am now by saying, why don't I know where I want to go next? Hmm. Why don't I know? So I got over the being told I couldn't and became the, okay, this is what I have, make the best of it. And now it's the, wow, this is glorious. I get to do this thing I always dreamed of being a writer, but the where to go next, I have, I don't know how to dream. So now I realize that maybe when I get to permission to dream and want things and actually take them for myself, demand that I am deserving enough to have those things, maybe that's when I'll know I'm there, but I'm sure not there yet. Hmm. Um, I have an assertion. All right. Okay. And my assertion is that the questions that you have that circle, the ones about you know, the, the, the underlying buzzy questions of like, why are you doing this way? Or could you do it differently? Or if you, if only you did this or you should, or whatever the sentence stems that you want to use, if there was a way to shift your relationship to those questions, you could create the spaciousness for seeing that you are already there. Mm-hmm. But then we'll, what will I obsess over and self oh, yeah, I mean, over? But th- then what, right. what will I vex over? Right. I'm not saying that you're not going to try to fuck yourself over 10 times, but... A hundred percent. Right. I'm good at it. I've made a lifestyle out of it. You've already told us what you're gonna, how you're going to fuck yourself over. Because you're totally. going to say, ah, oh, I'm a woman without a vision, without a dream. Who am I? And I'm over here saying, I bet that's there too, but because the energy is going to, I don't have it yet. I don't know. It's not allowed to reveal itself. You're right. So the idea of me writing about this is this search for home and belonging. That is my next book called Where To Next. It's that I'm already home. Yes. It's that the belonging is with me, but I'm going to spend my entire book looking for it and going into showing the reader how I, I know I'm already there, but I'm terrified of the destination. What will I do with myself then? I've been hell-bent on productivity to hide behind my whole life. Mm. Imagine that there's some like Candyland cabin, right? As long as we're going to children's sort of and visuals. you know, Candyland is, was my favorite game as a child. Sure. Otherworldly, of course. Yes. Little gingerbread men, oh, peppermint yes. decorations. What could be better, right? right? So imagine there's this Candyland cabin. 
that's very 2022. However, it's got, you know, it's got Wi-Fi. Granite. And, yeah, and granite, <laughs> right? In tones of gray, which apparently are very cool. I'm not a gray, grayish person. Okay. So I know that I'm outdated, but it's got all the stuff. And imagine like that is the home. And in that home is quiet. And it's just quiet. Yeah. So the productivity, right, is like left. I don't know. I'm not saying that any of it is wrong, by the way. But what I'm picking up is a desire for peace. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I don't have a preconception of what that would look or feel like, which makes it a little difficult to grab, but moving in that direction feels really yummy. Like taking the taking the noise down. You know, I didn't used to be able to be alone with myself, and now I can. In fact, I just got back from 8 or 9 days in the woods alone and I don't have to be writing now to do it. That took a long time because mm. I moved into a career that I could do anywhere and all the time. Oh, there you go. I never had to be quiet, never had to be alone either. I could just make it up. But then I nailed memoir as my passion. And it meant if I was going to be writing, I had to tell the truth. So when you hold a mirror up to yourself long enough, you can't help but look in it. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So that's coming. And you know what? That does feel like an accomplishment. I must yeah. admit to literally want to be on my own in the quiet. So cool. Starting. Yeah. Yeah. Work in progress. Work well, in progress. It's hard to tone down the beasts. Yeah. I'm going to be 60 next year. So I'm 56. We're close, girl. We're close. We are close. So we're hot, but we're close. Yeah. We are. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God there's no video today because. Totally. My hair's yeah. still wet from this morning. I know. Yeah. I'm on the podcast dog and pony show. So. I have headphone da, da, head. Da, 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 right. Da, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, tell me this. Yes. I, I think you, you've you've entered the world. I was thinking about about you. How did you know that you wanted to write, and you wanted to help other people? You wanted to support other people to be the writer they could be. So a few. Really clear messages coalesced for me and like everything, I had to fall over it because I didn't go directly here. You know, I have a degree in urban planning. I have a degree in urban design. I wrote in those fields, though, mm -hmm. even when I wasn't writing personally. So it was always writing for me, right from Tickle Pinkle up. It was always books for me. I didn't know that I'd have the capacity or skill to be a writer because for a long time I romanticized it and revered it. I mean, these books were a place for me to hide. These books were a, another worldly place. And I don't think I really knew that nonfiction existed. So when my career started to have writing in it and it merged with this passion I have for giving voice to people who can't or won't use the voice that they have, which was in government, in politics, I was involved in politics from a really, really young age and passionate about people given a voice who didn't have one. Something in there merged. So I spent years doing public meetings around policy changes for a government that I worked for. And I realized that this is what fired me up, is that I'm not any better at saying these things than anyone else. It's that I've been given the capability to do it and trust from them to make it happen. 
when I realized how hard it was to write a book and someone coached me, that's when it all came together. Mm. I saw the thing I needed most was something I wanted to become because it was in service. So it was always around this passion for the written word, but everything was around service of voice. And we all have a message and we all deserve the support that we need to tell it our way. And again, it's that that there's a bunch of things that you, I know you're seeing right through in me, but at some point, all of those pieces of my past careers came together and it was, I'm going in this direction and there was no other way to prepare to get here. So the helping other people tell their stories for me is this extension of if you don't have the courage or capability to do it, let me give you a hand. Let's try this mm -hmm. together. Yeah. I wanted to be that for people. Yeah. Did you have the courage when you decided to write Loving Large, right? That was your first book, right? It's the first one I've published. Yeah. Okay. I have a couple, I have a couple in the can that I've never brought out. So this okay. might answer the question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. This might answer the question. Did you have the courage or was it because you were supported, held by someone who brought out that power in you? Yeah, that's a great one. It wasn't linear. It was an organic process of, first of all, Loving Large. I couldn't not write Loving Large. Telling the story of what happened to us became an idea that my son and I had really early days in his illness. He didn't want to really be involved in telling it much later because he got a little sick of his own story and he aged out of interest in being visible. But I realized that nobody was talking about what you do when a grenade goes off in your life. Mm. I did have two powerful advocates who said, it's good enough, you can do it, and people want to hear this. And they were the coaches, Linda Sievertson and Betsy Rappaport, that said, it's good enough, and we're going to help you make it stronger, and we're going to help you figure out how to get an agent and a publisher and put it in the world. And their doing taught me, it feels like everything I know. Uh, and that was 10 10 years ago, I started working with coaches and then published finally in 2020. That wasn't an easy process, but mm -hmm. I had to I had to be courageous enough to rewrite that book uh, twice and to tell my story because a publisher challenged me. Mm -hmm. Early publishers said, it's great that she's telling this story, but it's her son's story. And I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. It can't be Aaron's story. That's up to him. It had to be mine. That was the much more difficult story to tell was my yeah. own. Yes. Yep. So did I have the courage in the beginning? No way. Yeah. No yeah. way. So there it is with the right support, inspiration, and encouragement, right? Seeing that spark in you that I imagine that those coaches saw the desire and the fear and the love, like all of it at the same time and said, we're here. They said, do it anyway, which yeah. has become like a real, a real um, tagline for me. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm now stepping into writing my next memoir and not, not my second book, but the next book that I will put out in the world. And it's all still there again. I had myself convinced for the last number of years, I could never write another book. What was I saying? I tell people, I tell people something else every day. What kind of hypocrite was I sitting here? coaching these wonderful, aspiring multi-book authors, and yet I didn't think I could do it again. There's only one way to find out. I challenged myself. So now I'm, I'm in the mix and feel really humbled by that, of this mixture of truth and fear every single day. 
do I really want to do this? Can I really do this? Is anybody going to want to read this? Those That just goes around. Writing is a really difficult life. It's tough to be compassionate with yourself while you try it. Yeah, absolutely. So to me, loving large is largely a love story from your giant heart. Thank you. Yeah. Where did you learn to love so fiercely? I became the mother he needed, that they needed, and the mother that I never had. Mm. And it was responding to circumstances, and I had nothing but his needs to follow. So it was a grenade goes off in our life. Your child faces a diagnosis you know nothing about. Virtually no one knows anything about. I still have people saying to me, are you serious? Your son has that infamous gigantism disease. But, you know, he was 15 and I knew nothing except how to get my kid what he needed. Honestly, nature takes care of us sometimes. But the willingness to love him beyond my own what was safe for me. I didn't know that I had that in me. I didn't know that I could sacrifice myself for someone else's needs. And that's where sort of the dark discovery of the memoir came in for me. I mean, it's okay that I pushed myself to the limit for my kid, but I also tend to do that for everyone. Mm. And that can be a dangerous way to live. It can be. Yeah. And it also can, right? That warrior can be who's needed at any yeah. given moment. Yeah, and, and I've, I've always really liked her. Mm-hmm. I've always really liked that doer, server, lover, I'll be what you need, because I haven't always been able to tap into what I needed. In fact, I lost the instinct to do that throughout my life. Put your own needs, put your own needs last was survival for me. And um, you do lose the muscle. You, you lose the ability to put your needs forward. And In a lot of ways, that's what Loving Large taught me that I didn't want to see because, of course, it was fine to look after my child and sacrifice myself for that. And then I realized how frequently I was doing that in my life. And that was relationships. That was my family of origin. Uh, It rarely happens now in work relationships because I tell myself that I love to give generously and that's okay. But, of course, I let the boundaries get nudged a little far (laughs) sometimes, right? (laughs) Yeah, I understand that. I I absolutely. Yes, I do. (laughs) Tell us how fear and love can exist equally in any particular order at any given time. So I like to think of fear and love as trading places. So I can hold both and I know they're both there, but I can only give my attention to one at a time. So there have been moments in my life where I would say, and I think I think Liz Gilbert talked about this maybe in her book, Big Magic, of saying, okay, fear, and self-judgment and all those other things that stop us from, you know, creating what we want. Like you could, I I know you're there and I know you're looking after me, dude, but put your seatbelt on and get in the back Mm -hmm. seat. So how can they exist? Fear drove me to get the things done that would keep the love alive. So I was always toggling between the two, but I couldn't let either go because throughout the years of medical advocacy for my son and the medical advocacy now, if I lose sight of either one, the authenticity disappears. So if I ever once said, I'm doing this out of pure love, well, that was bullshit. I was fucking terrified I was going to lose my kid. 
I was terrified because I loved them so much. So they toggle in and out of a place that is about the size of my heart. And I can only manage one of them until it overpowers the other. And then I have to give the other my attention. So I do think of it almost as two sides of a heart. And in a way that has become an instinct for living, which Mm. I do have to manage a lot. Because if I can't tone the fear down sometimes, I make decisions that are a little bit more spontaneous than I need. But in medical situations, that spontaneity gave me the ability to answer questions quickly and make decisions that helped him. And I didn't always have much time to make those decisions. So fear served me and love drove me. And if I didn't have both of them, then the outcome would have been very different, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was thankful to be fearful because if I had walked into that thinking, I've got this figured out, my kid's got one of the rarest diseases on the planet, think of how it might have turned out. Think of what I would have missed, the details I would have dropped, the advice I would have turned away. Right, right, absolutely. How is Aaron today? Uh, He's big, really big. (laughs) So (laughs) he's great. He's, He's as good as he can be. He's almost 30. He's um, medically quite well managed, living an awesome life. He's got a nice long future ahead of him, as far as we know, and he's living as healthily as he possibly can. He has a little bit of medical intervention still. He's very carefully monitored, but not as closely as he used to be. Like once in a while, he gets a reprieve and he doesn't have to see a doctor for a year or have a scan for six months. So he's uh, the best he's ever been. Nice. Night, absolutely. Yeah. And he's big. He, he is a big boy. Big. 6'11. 6'11. Oh, he is he is big. He's a big yeah. boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell us, because I imagine most listeners will not have yet read Loving Large. Yes. Tell us what you most want us to know about Aaron's diagnosis. And as much as you want to share detail about your own experience. And how that led to what now seems to me, here we are 15 years later, 14 years later. Yep. And you as a medical advocate, tell us about that. So we're going from diagnosis, achy knees, but you can tell more, to where we are today. Yeah. Achy knees and tells me when he's uh, just before his 16th birthday that my knees hurt so much I can't go to school. And I was like, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Nice one. But then I started to put it together and he said, and I'm still having headaches all the time. And then one day in the car, he says to me, mom, I can't see you. I said, mm. what do you mean you can't see me? And he said, like, you're moving your hands while you talk, but I actually can't see your hands. So when the headaches started and the knees were really bad, I thought I had an excuse to get him to the doctor because you don't easily get your healthy 15-year-old to a doctor. Um, he was six foot five at the time, not out of the realm of possibility for height. I was a hockey coach then. I knew how big the other kids on the team were, and they were a broad range of height. Height comes on in all of us at different rates. So, But what had twigged it for me is this really cool story of about six months before the knees erupted, my brilliant hairdresser said to me that she thought Aaron had gigantism because she'd seen a picture of him. And after I blew, because I knew that that had something to do with visual stigma, I asked her more about it, and she said, my mom has the same disease. It happens Mm -hmm. in adults, too. So all of that was sitting on my mind when I went to the doctor with my walking, funny, sore, complaining 15-year-old who was not very polite that day. And when the doctor looked at me and said, does Aaron look like his brother? I said, no, he doesn't look like his little brother. 
So, and what that meant was that the disease was already acting on his facial features and it was active everywhere. So when an MRI, a CT scan and an MRI showed us a three and a half centimeter tumor. So that's about an inch round, size of a golf ball. So started the medical odyssey and it went into gigantism, me learning the pros and cons of what it would mean to have a tumor that size. He would lose his vision. He was going to become more and more uncomfortable. His joints were going to lose their mobility. He could quite literally and bluntly outgrow his body. What was keeping him as comfortable as it was is that we had height in both of our families. Mm. So had Aaron been predisposed genetically to be shorter, he would have been in agony much sooner and we would have seen the, the compromise to his health. So through a series of, I call them coincidences in my book, and it really is almost comical, how I found a brain surgeon, how I found a pediatric cardiologist, how I found the doctors, and how I got on the internet and bravely, and this is not who I am. I know I sound pretty out, outspoken here, but I am really introverted. And I sent an email to a doctor in the middle of the night, somebody in California, I'd never heard his name and said, my kid just got diagnosed with gigantism and I don't even know what this means. We're in central Canada, what do I do? So really human nature reminded me that people really do wanna help each other. Mm -hmm. And I did become a believer in asking for help and usually getting it. When you have a sick kid, most times you do get it, you know, there's a lot of compassion there. So moving onward, he had a couple of brain surgeries, lots of experts. We did get Aaron the doctors he needed, which was so fortuitous that I live in a very populated area of Canada and some of the world's experts were here, who knew, but every doctor that he met would see one or two patients like him in their career. Mm -hmm. Or zero. Or zero. Most zero. But even yeah. the ex experts would see a prepubescent individual with a tumor this size that secreted growth hormone less than a handful of times in their career. So I was always doing this debate, and this is where earlier, maybe, the, as you called it, the fierceness came in, was what do you mean you want to operate on my son, but you've never tried it before? What do you mean? And so I did. I bumped up against a lot of crudeness, a lot of lack of knowledge, a lot of rudimentary behavior, and a lot of clinicians that could use an education in bedside manner. But I also bumped up against people I continue to speak to, revere, work with, and advocate with, who took care of him at a time when he was considered one of the most extreme cases they'd seen. He would have outgrown. He would have been seven and a half feet tall. He's still one of the tallest in Canada and one of the tallest with the disease, but there are fewer than sort of 300-ish cases of gigantism in the world at any one time. And the really lucky ones will age out of the disease into something called acromegaly. That's where my advocacy comes in. So I have been working sort of with an, an acromegaly charity, and I just sort of stopped my work there because I realized that I could put my attention into finding other kids with gigantism, and that mm -hmm. feels really right for me. So on the advocacy side, the fierceness and the love had to coalesce. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're, you're not functional. So if the fear is overpowering, all you do is feel it and you can't get anything done. When you remember how much you love this person that can't speak for themselves, can't advocate for themselves, is, is too ill, then that comes in. I'd also been raised by a mother who was active in medical advocacy her entire life. Mm. So this was modeled for me. My mother was an early palliative care advocate. She was a nurse when I was a child and then went into palliative care as her professional and personal life. Wow. So that she was early. Served, she was early really early. And she founded a palliative care organization in my hometown. 
So I grew up around critical and chronic disease. It was a dinner table talk, even though I didn't know the people's names. So it familiarized me with how to be an advocate and not be paralyzed by it. And that combined with me being a storyteller led to my book. But that curiosity, that storytelling brings to us is probably why I'm able to stay in advocacy and not lose my lose my heart to mm-hmm. heartbreak because these stories aren't easy to deal with. But, you know, the coolest thing is you find other folks like you. I found other parents. I found other moms. I found these fierce mama bear moms out there who had kids that were going through things and f- said, well, if I don't belong anywhere, at least I belong there. Mm-hmm. And that, that really helped for those years where I was trying to figure out how I could be an advocate and still be a writer and all those things. Yeah, there was, a, there was quite a journey of letting him grow up and me not stopping my life while Aaron got well, knowing that he would never get well knowing that if treatment wasn't successful, he would have a very low quality of life. It was everything from it being fatal because his body could not withstand the pressure on it to grow. And although that wasn't often spoken about by doctors, they were pretty frank with me. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to be able to say, give it to me straight. And guess what? I had Google. I had right. you know, I had the medical books from the discovery of the disease at the and I although it loving large isn't medical in nature I have stockpiled all that knowledge for a future book that where I write about giants medical mythical and magical in a book that's that's coming so advocacy so was cool. born of it yeah I've right been. yeah I know. giants medical mythical magical absolutely and so cool yeah because you know there's a lot we don't know and so advocacy turned into get the kid what he needs but when your kid lives with a visually stigmatizing disease mm-hmm. you become a different kind of advocate because it was starting to impinge on our quality of life we'd go places and people would react to him you know this not just the staring and people trying to take pictures of my seven foot tall son but it was the how different he and I were right I'm blonde curly haired he's dark haired and seven feet it's like oh you guys are so cute it's like wait this isn't cute this is our life Mm -hmm. yeah it's really cool that he can reach the top shelf for me which by the way I have him do every (laughs) single day I did it this morning hey can you just reach that for me he's what am I right you are my at-home stepstool. That's right. I don't need one of those grabber things. I yeah, have you. I have you. Yeah, yeah. So I hope that answers some of that about how you get yeah. into it. But and I, I realized that I just became sort of. I just saw my life from the outside and realized how logical it was that I became, you know, this person in service of other people's stories by the experiences of my own life. But the bottom line of how you become this fierce is you become fierce when we're called on our capacity and our capability, it's so unlimited. And we have to be okay when crisis hits. Guess what? When trauma hits, we survive it. Yes. I will say that some of us survive. Some of us, when called up around the fierceness, the fierce warrior for somebody up for someone else, right? We're not all ready for that. We're not You're right. Yeah. So I want to acknowledge that you thank you you heard it and you did not look back by the way that's not in judgment of someone no. who who did not show up that who way. couldn't do it that way yeah yeah and i i had no doubt in the in the aftermath that what i had done was a story but i didn't have any idea of the scale and I still don't really, to be honest. I mean, I, I I truly believe that we just simply do what we're called on to do. And aren't we lucky if we can manage that 
and ourself at the same time. I failed miserably. I floundered. You know, I was I was beached for a long time and there was a nervous breakdown and there was an end of a marriage and I blew up my my best friendship. But I I didn't let him down and that was my lowest common denominator. Yeah. It wasn't much some days, let me tell you. It was just yeah. barely getting out of bed and getting him to school or getting him to the doctor, but it was all I could do and that bare minimum has to be enough for us some days, right? Yes, absolutely. And your younger son, Justin. Yep. <laughs> He's unaffected as of unaffected. now. And so am I. And so are other members of our um, his father, their father's unaffected. So as far as we know, the gene for it manifesting in Aaron hasn't been discovered, but we're still mm-hmm. part of all of, through my advocacy, we're still part of the only international studies going on. And in another six months or so, I'm going to found something called the Gigantism Global Registry, which is going to start to find those diagnosed with it to see if we can, through parent connection, because of course, sometimes these are prepubescent kids who aren't legally able to speak for themselves. So I'm marshalling a few doctor experts to help me beat the bushes to find diagnosed patients mm. and to communicate through the parents just to say, what have we all got in common? Like, could mm. we start to benchmark what we have in common? We've Some of the studies have shown um, geographic hotspots. There are some geographic hotspots for the gene in the world. There are two or three known genetic anomalies that explain it. And, you know, as rare diseases go, that's really fortunate. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of genetic diseases that are only known by the name of the genetic anomaly tag that has been discovered in a single child. So mm-hmm. this one's really far advanced. And you know why this is really far advanced, however rare? Because of the frigging visual stigma. Yeah. Because everybody likes to talk about giants. So mythology, which I write about uh, in the coming coming years, Mythology has done us the favor of telling the truth. And as you know, I worked on a book about wolves where we discussed that the mythology around wolves is actually truth-telling. This was Mm -hmm. not storytelling or fiction. Well, the myth is usually based on something real that's extrapolated into something fantastical. And where giants are concerned, all those things that we hear about giants, walk funny, talk funny, the distorted facial features, everything's true, except they don't eat small children as far as I know. Right. (laughs) And they but don't they climb up the beanstalk. No, they really don't. They don't come after little golden gooses and yeah. that kind of thing. But no, I mean, it did me a favor that because it gave my kids' disease a name mm-hmm. that was somewhat recognizable. Yes, absolutely. Wow. So tell me, you've you've introduced a few books, one being, I don't know, did we actually talk about while we hit record, um, your your uh, alchemy book. Yes, my alchemy book's called Elements. Elements. It's called Elements, and that is the alchemy of writing. Mm. So writing inspiration seen through the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And it's coming out in another couple of months. And it's sort of my um, proposition to the to writers that is writing for me sits at the nexus of architecture and alchemy. A little bit like we talked about fear and love. Mm-hmm. So you need a little bit of structure and tension and plan, but there's a whole lot of magic. And that magic is in the distillation of material into gold, which and that's the alchemy part. So my beautiful book, Elements, which all I wanted was for it to be beautiful and, and inspire people to put pen to paper. It'll come out in a few months. And it talks about this theory that I have learned 
through the rigors of writing, that we can have all the structure and intention we want, but until we're prepared to have that little bit of unknown that goes back to nature and magic, and a little bit of myth sometimes, then we can't write in a way that um, really grabs people. So that'll come out first, and I'll bring that out in another couple of months. Okay, so this show will come out in the beginning of 2023, which may line up. So with elements, yeah. With elements. So if there is something to link, we'll have it linked in the show notes. Fantastic. Otherwise, yeah, it will somehow make it happen. Maybe even bring it back for after. <gasps> Maybe get you writing a little, Karen. Do yeah. a live writing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, that might be, that would fun. be fun. That would be fun. Yeah. We could do a little trauma hiders podcast writing group. Right. Mm, we can I'm all in. do that. Okay. So tell me anything. Yeah. What I'm imagining is that one of the things you're most excited about is elements. Is there anything else in your world that is lighting you up? You know, I am excited to be writing again. Mm. So I gave myself over, and this speaks to the being in service, but I gave myself over, as you know, to many glorious books and wonderful clients, 30, 40, 50, I don't know how many over the last few years. And nothing fires me up than seeing the books come to fruition. And you know, there's been some beautiful work put out into the world that I've just love being that sort of Sherpa for. I just carry it along. But the thing I think I'm excited about is coming back to my mission, my own mission, because we get that all that busyness that has been my projection, Mm -hmm. my generosity to the world has all been so that I didn't feel like I had to go back and get writing myself. So the thing I'm excited about and probably have the most reticence about is working on my next memoir, the follow-up to Loving Large, which is Where To Next. And I have to hold the faith like everybody else. Guess what? I can be a writing coach to whomever you like. But when I have to writing coach myself, oh boy, I hope there's as much comedy in it as I think there is. Because right, right now the sub the subtitle, and I have this, I'm doing this through a Substack blog right now. And I'm calling it, um, it's writing alchemy, but it is, it's the art and alchemy of writing. But basically it's what happens to the writing coach when she has to coach herself. Mm. The answer is I'm useless. Absolutely yeah. Well, useless. I happen to know a few good coaches. Do you? Even writing. I do. I do. Writing coaches, coaches. Maybe <laughs> you know hook, some too. Yeah. Maybe you can hook me up with a few. Yeah. yeah. I'm, maybe you could name some episodes here and hook me up. Right. Right. That is something that occurred to me um, throughout this conversation is I hear a lot of support ah. being given and generosity being put out into the world. Who supports you? Who supports me? Do you know, unwillingly, every single one of my clients. Mm. And I realized that, you know, and I think there's going to be, and I don't know if this is another book in future, but my work brings me the book I most need to learn. Mm -hmm. So the support comes and I have to be careful doing it because as you know, we get really boundaried, right? But I learn how to persist and how to be kind to myself, how to do all the things I need to do to not go down some of those dark rabbit holes Mm -hmm. because of the books my clients bring to me. Mm. And that is why I do what I do ultimately, because I gain as much from it as they do. And that support comes from them offering me honestly their manuscript. Mm -hmm. And every manuscript is a, a lockdown arrangement with them where I don't, I have no attachment to them publishing or completing And it is none of my business to ever talk about their content. And in that comes 
the support that I need because I get back what I give and God, that, that feels good. I don't have to prostrate myself and say, I really could use some support right now because there it is in their manuscript, yeah. right? There it is in the coaching message of these wonderful people you and I know putting these gorgeous books out into the world. You know, I'm also, um, I'm terrible at asking for help. Mm-hmm. And this way I don't have to ask. It's offered through written material and that's how I really take it to heart. I have to read it to believe it's true. Mm. Yeah, this coach has a few red flags about that, but um, we don't have to go there right now. <laughs> we don't ha- I don't have to whether it's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to um, challenge that belief and um, you, call you, you on your could. bullshit. I could. You call me on my bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't do what I'm told. Don't well, get me sure. wrong. I don't do what I'm told in those pages, but I think there's some good shit in there. <laughs> right, and even sometimes we don't do what we tell what we you know, reflect to other people as of some really not. brilliant shit there, right? Yeah. And on occasion, do as we I play say, with it. not as yeah. I, of course, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. You know what, though? The proof's in the pudding. That's right. You can't write your way out of bullshit. Nope. You cannot write your way out of it. You're in it and you got to keep writing until it cleans itself up. That is and right. I'm, uh, I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not, ready for that just yet. So I'm still <laughs> floundering, floundering in my early chapters of that next memoir of telling the truth. Because there, okay. there's a, there are a lot of people invested in what happened yeah. to the kid at the end of Loving Large. And this doesn't give away too much because there's not much suspense in it. But at the end of Loving Large, these my children challenged me to go get a life. And Aaron literally says to me on a particular day, go, like go. And he says, go to Ireland, go to California, mm-hmm. go drink somewhere. And I did go to Ireland and mm-hmm. I did go to California and those things did happen. Okay. The drinking, yeah, not so much. I tried to become a whiskey expert during COVID, yeah. but I got it. Now I'm not there. I'm right there with you. I call that like playing in the dark arts, you know, when you, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, no, it's, it's, it's a no for me. I, I can't spell bourbon, but your friend and mine, Sarah Alberton, she really tried to teach me about bourbon once. And I was like, I just don't even know what to call all these things. So <laughs> Me neither. Yeah, yeah. I'm, you you can't put a fancy steak in front of somebody that likes cheesies, you know. And that's, that's right. who I am. Yeah, that's right. I'm not a fancy, not a fancy. But um, yeah. So the next book is going to challenge me in all those ways, Karen. It's going to challenge nice. me to not be a hypocrite and yeah. to go to the places I I ask other people to go to in their own writing. And the best books that I read are at a level level of vulnerability that is beyond the writer's comfort zone, and I have to go there again. I want to say this that your hypocrisy Mm. is part of your humanity. Thank you. And I, without judgment and with all compassion, it is just there. And there's so much of you that is so very real and so truthy and so vulnerable and honest. Thank you. And then there's that little piece and we've all got some, I'm not normalizing, but just saying. Yeah. Right. So what, yeah. what's been most helpful for you today being here in the Trauma Hiders Club? Well, you got me to see something that I've only looked at a couple of times before that I thought all of this happened by accident mm. where I am now. But if I put Tickle Pinkle and Loving Large into mm-hmm. a great big cauldron and stirred them around, they're the same thing in a way, their voice. And that's what's helped me is 
you got me to say the thing that I've been needing to look at for a really long time. You know, we all think that we're making our lives happen, don't we? Mm -hmm. We all think, and like, I've always kind of thought that I fell over the logs and stones and crap and I fall really well. I thought I'd been falling over shit my whole life. But what if I wasn't? Like, what if the little girl that wanted to be a writer, okay, I can't illustrate, but I have a great guy I work with. I know a guy. But like, what if that dream of this little girl that was sick at the time, I had rheumatic fever and I had to be in bed. So they gave me books and pencil crayons and all the things. I probably should have given me a typewriter. But I wrote my first books then mm. to heal. Mm -hmm. And I'm still doing it now. Yes. And I have never made that connection. I'd made the connection between my father being a printer and publisher and having his own printing company and my mother being a palliative care nurse. Wasn't that an interesting mm -hmm. alchemical thing? But the fact that the predestined piece of this thats and the way it's protected me and guided me, that feels pretty awesome right now. Yeah. Thank you, Mattel Company, for right. toys, for Upsy Downsy Land and my lack of talent. You know what? I'm actually going to do a little investigating now. Somebody who listens to this is going to know about Upsy Downsy Land, Karen, and we're going to find some toys from 1967. Well, when we were talking about it, I started Googling and they're still Did out you? there. Really? Okay. Yeah. Tickle's got some serious hair. Yeah. That could uh, happen to me. Seriously. And then <laughs> what is the other one? Like, you're totally high. What is it called? Ba baby so high. Baby. So, I mean, come on. And, and the just right pet. So I think, you know what? And I see on here, in fact, this is really clever, that the book has an upside down guy. So this has to be investigated. Let's check this out. There are eight books in the series. How do I not have this? Yeah. To be continued. To be continued. There's so much to dig into. I'm wondering if it's not like some manifesto. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to dig into Upsy Downsyville or land. We, we are going into it, kids. We are. You heard it here. Trauma Hiders Club, be gone. It's all about <laughs> Upsy Downsy the Upside land. Down. <gasps> and, then we have this, and then we have Stranger Things, right? We can make that connection. <laughs> oh, there's so much happening. I haven't seen Stranger Things okay. yet. Okay. Well, the place where things get all messed, the stranger things place, right? Where things get stranger is the upside down. What? Yes. Okay. It's yeah. time for some TV for me. Let all my clients know for the next week. I'm not going to have their pages. That's read. right. I'm going into TV. You better get in on stranger things. And with that, I am so glad we had this time together. Thank you for an interview that moved me along on the path. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for being who you are, showing up fully. And anytime, love. Your generosity to the listeners of the Trauma High. Trauma. I can't even say my own show. I'm so excited about Upside Want me Downsy to say Hill. it? Yeah, say it. Trauma Hiders Club. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, love. See you soon. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.